turn with me, if you would, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians 5, we'll be looking at verse 1 through 6. I want to say thank you again to you, Calvary, for allowing me to be here. It's an honor and a pleasure, and for Pastor Van inviting me into the pulpit. It's a great opportunity, and I've had the chance to meet several of you, and you're very loving and welcoming, and it's uh, truly an honor to be here. And as Pastor mentioned, my wife, uh, Carrie, is with me. You want to stand up, Carrie? Uh, we've uh, been together almost uh, seven years, and our uh, two kids, Streeter and Charlotte, are in the nursery. So we thank, thank all those serving there this morning as well. Galatians 5, 1 through 6, beginning in verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Please pray with me. Our Father, we thank you that you are a loving and gracious God. We thank you that we can come to you freely by faith and put our trust and hope in Christ and that you promise to give us um, much better than we deserve and go beyond and give us an inheritance that we are truly unworthy of. I pray that you would open our minds and our ears that we might hear your word this morning and that you would encourage us and strengthen us in our walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've titled this message, You're Free, So Be Free. The book of Galatians has several major themes in it, law, faith, grace, and the Holy Spirit. But as one commentator put it, the whole reason for Paul writing to the Galatians is summed up in his passionate cry of verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. It's like the end of Braveheart when the hero cries out, Freedom! And remember, what happens in the movie is that he is part of the rebellion to break free from the bondage and the tyranny of the king, King Edward I, also known as Longshanks. And he ruled the kingdom brutally, but could never get rid of this Scottish threat. But it's not only Longshanks that William Wallace faces, he's also facing against some of the other Scottish lords like Lachlan, who want to use this battle and these wars to further their own profit and give them an advantage. And what Paul is doing is he is addressing the Galatians more concerned with the Lachlans of the world than the Longshanks. Because in the letter, a group of people known as the Judaizers had infiltrated the ranks of the Galatians to spy on the freedom that they had, Paul says. And so they enter in and they are quick to point out that it is a first step to believe in Christ, but the next step is you must become doers of the law. You must 
become part of the Jewish community. And the way to do that was to join in the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. So they were trying to convince them that faith was a first step, but they must embrace Jewish customs and become part of the people of Abraham, part of God's people through circumcision. And so like William Wallace, Paul is crying out freedom to the church of Galatia. He's saying Christ has liberated you to be free. Now be free. He's saying you are free for freedom Christ has set you free. And I believe that if you get Galatians 5.1, then you'll understand the entirety of this book, of all that Paul is trying to reveal here. Maybe it seems obvious what he's saying at first, but I hope to show how important Christian freedom is in this life. First, negatively, what living in slavery and legalism means. And then second, positively, what it means to be free and how to stay free. Now, before getting into chapter 5, I want to do a quick summary of what Paul has said in Galatians 1 through 4 up until this point. He begins the letter with a brief introduction and then a harsh tone. He says, I'm astonished that you are deserting the gospel of grace and turning to another gospel, which actually is not a gospel at all, he says. Because although they had embraced salvation by grace through faith, they were turning back again to a form of legalism. And he's not worried that he will just lose his own followers or that he will no longer be in charge of them. But he is passionately concerned that the Galatian church will lose their freedom. Freedom that they have been given and have received, they are beginning to drift away from. And he didn't just make this up, he says. He received it directly from Jesus Christ through a revelation that he was given. The other apostles that he spoke with and that he met with, they did not give him the gospel. He received it directly from Christ. And the message to us is the same as it was to Paul and to the church in Galatia. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior and as your Lord by putting your faith in him, and trusting in him wholly rather than yourself, don't return again to a previous way of trying to earn salvation and earn favor before God. And for those of you who have not accepted Christ as Savior and as Lord, I pray that you would hear the gospel of grace and put your faith and trust in him. We find then in chapter 2, as Paul continues, he says that Titus was not compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Gentile. The the Judaizers were trying to steal the freedom that Paul and Titus had and trying to compel them in this way. And it took some serious compelling because salvation was at stake, they were saying. You see, the Judaizers wanted the Gentiles to go back to the Jewish customs and the requirements of the law. Yes, they needed to trust in Jesus, but they also needed to follow Judaism. And most importantly, the sign of the covenant, which was circumcision. It was a very persuasive demand. They could follow the way of Judaism and be accepted in the people of God, or they could remain a Gentile and be set apart from God's family. And even Peter was led astray by their cunning, and Paul has to rebuke him firmly. Then he lays out justification by faith, both positively and negatively, three times in two verses. He says, we are justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. And he goes on to famously say in Galatians 2.20, 
that he has been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer he who lives, but Christ living in him. But then watch how he continues in 2.21. He says, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If our salvation does not come by faith in Jesus Christ, and if it's not given to us freely by grace, then Christ died for nothing. Salvation must be accepted by faith in Christ. And if there is any other way, then the cross becomes meaningless. We read in Romans 4, Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. If salvation came through works, then it would have to be paid to you as an obligation. But through faith, righteousness is granted to us through Jesus Christ. And Paul makes this argument in Romans 4 using the example of Abraham. And then in Galatians 3, he again uses the example of Abraham to make this distinction. And in chapter 3, he says, You foolish Galatians! He's desperate to get them to grasp this message. Foolish Galatians, he says, don't they know that they have come all this way by grace through faith? Just like all that Abraham had, all that had been given to him, it was received by grace, given by God's grace, just like Abraham was given promises of blessings before the law had come. The law was put into place to show us that we are already enslaved. We are already in bondage to sin. Yet freedom comes through Jesus Christ. The law was meant to lead us to Christ and to point us to him and to show us our need for him. But now that he has come, we are no longer under the obligations of the law to keep it and all of its demands. And now he begins to reveal the freedom that we have, that we have from the law and its demands. It was fulfilled in Christ when he lived a perfect life and now can be credited to us through faith in him. Chapter 4 then reveals that we are enslaved by the law, but when Christ had come, he was born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, so that now we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. We are no longer slaves, but free, and therefore heirs of God's promise. You see, before they knew God and before they had put their faith in Christ, of course they were slaves. But now that they had received freedom, how is it that they are returning back to their slavery? It's like Sarah and Hagar, he says. Sarah and Hagar, who were the mothers of Abraham's children. Hagar was um, the one that he tried to make the promise happened because he wanted a son. He needed one for the promises to be fulfilled. And then Sarah, his wife, was the one through whom the promise did come, even though she was old in age. And he says, freedom comes through promise, not through effort. It's not through the effort of Abraham to try to make a name for himself through his son Ishmael, but through the promise of Sarah and Isaac. If you return to effort in trying to do it on your own, then you are no longer receiving the promise because grace is all about receiving in humility, just accepting. It's about a humble acceptance is what it is. All that so he can say in chapter 5, 
And look with me in verses 1 and 2. He can say, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. You have two choices, slavery and freedom. So choose freedom. Don't choose bondage again. So let's now consider the negative. He points out three negatives of slavery, captivity, bondage, legalism. And it's like picking up a heavy wooden yoke and putting it on your shoulders. And he's saying, why are you putting this heavy burden back on yourselves? These words can seem bad enough, but here's the reality that if you go back to a works-based righteousness, if you embrace a form of legalism, if you go back to depending on your own ability to obey the law and all of its demands, then Christ is no longer an advantage to you. There, he has no value for you. Christ will not profit you or be of value to, to you in this way. So why carry such a heavy weight? Why carry this burden? It's hindering you. It weighs you down. And you are also rejecting the grace offered through the cross. Continuing verse 3, we read, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So he's saying if you want to go back again to earning favor and earning salvation through works, if you do this, then you're under obligation to keep the whole law, that you've got to meet all of its demands, not just some of it. He warned them earlier in chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on observing the law are under a curse, as it is written. Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Embracing a works righteousness is self-defeating because all who are under the law are under a curse. As lawbreakers and as sinners and those who are under the corruption of sin that prevents us from perfect obedience. No matter how hard we try, we cannot live up to its demands. The great reformer Martin Luther experienced this and put it this way. He said, I have learned of this by experience in the monastery, both in myself and others. I have seen many which have painfully travailed and upon mere conscience have done as much as was possible for them to do in fasting, in prayer, in wearing of hair, in punishing and tormenting their bodies with sundry exercises, and all to this end that they might obtain quietness and peace of conscience. Notwithstanding, the more they travailed, the more they were stricken down with fear. And especially when the hour of death approached, they were so fearful that I have seen many murderers condemned to death, dying more courageously than they did. Can you relate to what Martin Luther experienced here? Do you see some of these things in yourselves? I know I see some of these things and we try to labor hard in order to earn the Lord's favor. Sometimes we may think that by attending church each week that we have earned the Lord's favor and his salvation. Or maybe that since I've gone to seminary, I've earned the Lord's favor and that he owes me something. But that's bondage again to a works-based righteousness. Maybe you think that making a large donation would give you financial security. Or you think that you've been waiting patiently for a year or two years or even ten years. And now you deserve the Lord's blessing. But that's trusting in your own righteousness. 
You think that because you started a new ministry that it deserves blessing in other areas as well. But that's, again, trusting in your own works. But don't you see that it all comes from God and his grace? The ability to go to seminary or to do a mission trip or to serve in any capacity. The ability to make large donations or to wait patiently for years or to begin new ministries. All of this comes from grace. The beginning and through to the end is grace. And so Paul here is saying, having received it by faith, are you now trying to receive and finish in some other way? Are you trying to earn it? And that's exactly what the Galatian church was doing and why Paul was so desperate to change their mind. You were running well, he says. Who hindered you from the truth? Be free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul concludes his negative implications in verse 4 when he says, You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. So you're severed or alienated, he's saying. If you choose to be declared righteous by your own works, by the things you've done, by your obedience to the law, in that case, you've fallen away from grace. My all-time favorite musical is Les Mis, and it's not even close. It's the best. And the theme of law and grace is clearly seen in Jean Valjean and Inspector Javert. In Javert's song, Stars, he ironically sings, and I'm not going to sing it here because I might ruin it for everyone, just like Russell Crowe ruined it for me. But anyways, he sings, There out in the darkness, a fugitive running, fallen from God, fallen from grace. He knows his way in the dark. Mine is the way of the Lord. Those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. And it's ironic because Jean Valjean was set free from bondage through his acceptance of grace and mercy at the beginning from the priest. And it's Javert's unwillingness to accept grace and mercy that ultimately leads to his demise. Paul is saying here in this verse that to attain righteousness for yourself through works of the law is a rejection of what Christ has already done, the works that he accomplished on the cross, and it's a rejection of the grace that he offers to us. We can take on a works-based righteousness by trying to do the right thing in order to earn God's favor. And as dangerous as this is, there's also perhaps even a more devious form, and it comes in the accusation of the enemy, more than just an outward boasting of our goodness. It's a kind of inward boasting of our sinfulness. And we may not say it like that, but that's what it ultimately is. It's a works-based righteousness that says we cannot go to God in prayer, and I can't go to him in worship freely. I can't go to him in repentance, thinking that he'll accept me. I can't adore him for who he is because I'm too sinful. We believe the lie that we are already severed from Christ and that we have fallen from grace. We believe that we are too guilty and shamefully we sulk around the outskirts of the throne room of our king. But how wrong this is, how opposed to grace that is. We do not enter the Lord's presence because of our own goodness or because of the things that we have done. It says, not as if he looks towards us, and sees the good things that we have done and says, now you are welcome in. Now you can come into my presence. 
We never did in the first place. And we never will enter his presence like that. Those of us who have embraced Christ and accepted his gift of salvation know that it's by grace that we began. And it was nothing but faith that brought us into a relationship with him. The Holy Spirit is given to us by faith and not by works. And this is what Paul is addressing in chapter 3, verse 3, when he says, After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish the race by earning rather than by receiving? You see, Zavere was wrong in that those who follow the path of the righteous shall have their reward. There's only one who is perfectly righteous. But those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Those who are under the law are under the curse of the law. But those who are under grace are under the blessings and the promises of God. Those under grace are sons and daughters of God's promises. So then he's urging and pleading, don't return to slavery. Don't go back into bondage. Don't let the subtle call of legalism ensnare you. Because if you do, then Christ will be of no value to you. If you do, then you'll be required to keep all of the law and all of its demands, which is impossible. It's a burden that no one can bear. In that case, you have severed yourself from Christ and fallen from grace. And why do we go back to a works righteousness? But we, and we do it all the time. It's why, but why do we heed that call, that, that subtle seducing call to go back and earn our way before God? And I think it's because on the surface it can seem so easy. It's like the Israelites in Egypt when they were set free from the bondage and slavery of Pharaoh. What's the first thing that they did? They started to complain that they were free. They wanted to go back because to some extent they found comfort in the predictability, even in the bad circumstances that they were in. But that's not how grace works because grace is a free gift. Now, grace is not opposed to effort. Apathy is not some kind of virtue, but grace is opposed to earning. And if you think that your effort is earning you something, then you're returning to a works-based righteousness, and that is worthless. All right, so that doesn't sound good, going back into slavery, into bondage, legalism. So then what are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to respond? Scripture gives us three things. Stand firm wait and love stand firm wait and love first stand firm back in verse one we've already read but it says for freedom christ has set us free stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery stand firm like in romans 5 he says therefore since we have been justified through faith we have peace with god through our lord jesus christ through whom we have gained access by faith and to this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. So we stand firm in the grace that we have received by faith. Once you have received God's grace through faith in Christ, you must continue to stand firm in it. First Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our enemy seeks to rob us of our freedom and to make us slaves again. He seeks to rob us of the freedom that we have in Christ, the freedom that we have from sin and from death, 
the freedom we have from the obligation to uphold the law, our freedom that comes through faith in Christ and his work on the cross. And now we must stand firm in it. We must be alert and constant in our faith. If we let down our guard and allow the faith that we once had to remain sufficient for us for the days ahead, then we are not being steadfast. I once had a baseball coach who used to tell us to dig in when we went up to bat. And then he would demonstrate by stomping each foot on the ground next to the plate. And he would grind his cleats into the dirt and say, you got to dig in. And that's exactly what Paul is exhorting to the Galatians. He's saying, you got to dig in. you got to prepare for what's coming. Stand firm in your faith. Another curveball in life is coming your way. And if you're not standing firm, you may stumble and fall. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, God grant us grace to keep grace. God grant us faith enough to live by faith, even to the end, as the freeborn children of God for his namesake. And I love that. God grant us grace to keep grace because it's a gift. And even holding on to the gift requires grace that he gives us. And we've been liberated from the obligations of the law so that we might receive that blessing, the blessing of grace. We have been set free from having to earn our way into the presence of the Lord and set free from having to make sacrifices and set free from having to make atonement for ourselves and having to make penance for our sins and sacrifices in order to show that we are sorry for our sins and to try to make things right before God. But we are accepted and we are loved, not for what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. Therefore, stand firm, he says. So first, stand firm. And then second, wait. Verse 5, For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. Eagerly we wait, he says. It doesn't say eagerly work for it, eagerly try to attain it, but eagerly wait for it. It's this eager waiting so we are not just filing it away in the back of our memories and forgetting about it, but we are glad and expecting for our hope of righteousness. Spurgeon again put it this way, we have a righteousness that we dare present before God, for it is perfect. In it there is no omission and no excess We are righteous before God and without fault before his throne. That's the standing that we now have in Christ, that we can go to him and stand before his throne, knowing that we have a righteousness that we can present before him, not of our own, but that of Christ. And the lie that the enemy uses, he condemns us and tries to rob us of this hope. And we become powerless if we listen to him. The lie that we are not good enough and that we have to earn our way back into his presence becomes exposed for what it is, an evil accusation of the enemy. It's just an accusation when you hear that you're unworthy. Because yes, you're unworthy, but in Christ, you're now righteous and accepted as a son and daughter. If we go to God, bringing our own works and our own accomplishments in order to demonstrate how worthy we are to him, then we are robbing God of his grace and we are emptying the cross of his power. One commentator put it this way. The Galatians had already experienced new life in Christ. The problem is that they are in danger of being convinced 
that they can maintain their status of righteousness only by adding law to their faith in Christ. It's the classic pithy formula where Christ plus something equals nothing, but Christ plus nothing equals everything. I think that sums it up well, that if we put our faith in Christ and then try to add something to it, then we no longer have any advantage or profit or value in Christ. We have nothing. But if we have Christ alone, then we do have everything. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. The Holy Spirit is our down payment, he's saying. He is our guaranteed deposit that we have been redeemed and that we are righteous before God. Salvation comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit comes as our guarantee that the inheritance promised to us will certainly come. And all of this is to his glory. Those in Christ have been set free. Freedom has come through faith in Christ Jesus. And the Holy Spirit enables us to wait readily for the hope of righteousness that is coming. So then positively, we stand firm and we wait. And finally, we love. Verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. And if you've been following with me in these verses up until this point, you're probably wondering why I chose a passage that has circumcision 72 times in it. But the point here that Paul is trying to make is that the covenant given to Abraham came by grace through faith first. Then after that came the sign of the covenant. Faith, then the sign. The sign was just a sign. It didn't produce anything. But now that the new covenant has been established, the obligations of the law have been removed. They were there in order to point us to Christ. But now that Christ has come, they no longer serve that same purpose. For this reason, then, in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. It doesn't count for anything anymore. The outward sign of the covenant is no longer necessary. What matters is now internal. It's faith working through love. And this is what Paul is urging the, the Galatian church to do. Up until this point, it would be possible to begin to consider the freedom that we have in Christ as a means to cast, cast off any responsibility at all. If our works no longer have any value towards our own righteousness, then maybe we don't need to do any righteous acts at all. But this would be a misunderstanding of what it says. And the book of James counters this argument well when he says that faith apart from works isn't a true kind of faith. And Paul addresses this as well, skipping down to verse 13 and 14. He says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So here again is the call. You're free, so be free. Only don't use your freedom selfishly or abuse the freedom that you have in Christ 
but use it to serve one another in love. So then it means we can make preparations to go on a mission trip out of love for our neighbor, not out of a desire to earn favor with God. And we can make a sacrificial donation to the Lord, only we do it out of love, not out of a desire to win God's blessings. And we can go to seminary or serve the church diligently, but not believing that you deserve anything because of it. And we can witness to our neighbor and fight temptation and pray persistently, give generously, even study studiously, because for freedom, Christ has set us free. And we are free to do all these things, only to do them by faith, working through love. So I want to conclude with this. When the Son of God came down to this earth, and when he took on flesh, and he was born under the obligation of the law, and when he fulfilled all of its demands perfectly, and he was tortured and mocked and was beaten in spite of it, and when he was nailed to the cross and bled and died because of our sins, did he get what he deserved? No, he got what we deserved. And did he say that he came to do all these things because it was his duty? No, he says in John 15 that this is my commandment. You love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You see, friends, laws can force us into submission. But love, as one preacher put it, will teach a little child or will evangelize a nation. Love can stand and burn at the stake, or it can drop two coins in the offering box. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. We are free. Therefore, let us use our freedom wisely and love one another. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God. We thank you that we can come to you freely, not because of what we have done, but because of what Christ has done for us. So we ask that you would help us to stand firm in the grace and in the faith that you have given to us. And may we love one another just as Christ has loved us and demonstrated his love for us on the cross. We thank you that we can now be motivated by love and not out of duty. And we ask that you would grant us more grace that we might serve and love and give because we have been freed. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.